Would you grab your Bibles, please, and uh, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we will be focusing our attention this morning. Our text will be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So make your way there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read this for us this morning, and I'll read all the way down to verse 2 of chapter 6. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. And uh, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we, want, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation." That's God, God's word for us this morning. Um, it's our church's annual graduation Sunday, and so this morning we're celebrating our high school grads. I don't know how many churches out there make a, a real big deal about graduation Sunday, but if you haven't caught the drift yet, we really have like orchestrated the entire morning around that event, and we're celebrating our high school graduates. We want to surround them with love and support and encouragement from our church family as they set their eyes to the future. And I wanted to take the opportunity this morning with you to rehearse the gospel story, to refresh ourselves. I want to encourage our graduates next service and everyone else, of course, I want to encourage us to refocus and refresh ourselves in the most important good news in the world. Our culture has suffered greatly from an absolute neglect of the gospel. And this has led to widespread gospel ignorance. Right? It, may, it may often appear that the core of the gospel message is completely lost in the culture. And so we're surrounded by a culture and a society that is loaded with crazy misconceptions about what the gospel actually is and what the Christian faith is actually all about. N.T. Wright puts it like this. Uh, He's got a new book called Simply Good News, and he says, the Christian faith is presented as good news, yet 
the idea of seeing the Christian faith as news that is good is itself, ironically, news to many people today. Most people in the Western world think of Christianity as a system, a religious system or a system of morality. Most people do not think of it as news, a message about something that has happened as a result of which everything is now different. Now, too often, young people go on to reject the Christian faith that they grew up in, but I think that many times, not every time, but many times, what they end up rejecting is actually not the real gospel. Like they may have misunderstood it their whole lives, or they may have never truly gotten it and embraced the real gospel message for what it is. Uh, their, their faith may have been characterized solely by um, a code of ethics or a set of rules or a system of morality or a religious system like N.T. Wright was arguing, and that was it for them. And so it was a very exclusive set of rules and very offensive and to, uh, to outsiders and just doesn't seem to work in our world. And so a few years later, it comes around to it, and they say, you know what, I really don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. And the that that they're rejecting is, in fact, not even the actual true gospel message It's something else. They're rejecting maybe their legalism or their moralism, which is great. I'll reject that with them, but there's something they've missed. And so uh, young people can, can grow up, of course, in an environment with faithful gospel proclamation and preaching and living, and they can do that and still not get the gospel completely. We are 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to quicken us to saving faith. So our sin and our unbelief are enormous blinders, the Bible would make very clear. Don't underestimate the power of sin and unbelief to blind our eyes from truly seeing the truth, even if it's faithfully proclaimed right in front of us. So, we must be faithful, we must be vigilant in our gospel proclamation. We must be constantly rehearsing these truths as our lives continue to be shaped and reshaped by them. And that is what our passage this morning can help us to do, 2 Corinthians 5. So we're going to look at our passage this morning, and we're going to take a closer look and focus on three major themes. We'll, we'll take notice of three big points that we find there. First, we'll look at the gospel applied. Secondly, the gospel advanced. And thirdly, the gospel affirmed. So that's our focus this morning. The gospel applied, the gospel advanced, and the gospel affirmed. So first, the gospel applied. Uh, this passage, we have Paul describing a kind of Christianity that sociologists, is, is a very different kind of Christianity than what sociologists have been saying is happening to religion in our day, right? Where it's more and more getting pushed over to the side. It's getting pushed into the periphery, uh, into the private sphere of life. 
And instead, Paul is talking about a Christianity that is all-encompassing. Stemming from the influence of the greater culture around us, many of us have fallen victim. Uh, We've fallen into the trap of approaching our faith as if it's nothing more than a private religious preference. Many of our young people look at Christianity that way. It's just, that's the case. It's assumed. It is assumed that there's this major chasm between what we choose to believe personally about faith and spirituality, and there's this great wide gulf between that world of our private beliefs and then the rest of the real world, the actual world that we live in, okay? Uh, That's just, that's what's happening. There's a fundamental discontinuity. Leslie Newbegin says, most of us who are Christians have been brought up bilingual. For most of our early lives, we've been trained to use a language which claims to make sense of the world without the hypothesis of God. But then for an hour or two a week, we use the other language, the language of the Bible. You see what he's saying there? In other words, we struggle to make the translation. We struggle to take what we're doing right now, to take our time of worship and prayer and our reflection on Scripture, and we struggle to take those things into the whole of our lives. Instead, we so quickly drift right back into the alternative stories of reality, or the, the alternative ways of living and thinking in this world. And it is that struggle that Paul is concerned about and is addressing the Corinthian church about Corinth was a big city. Corinth was a trading city. It was a happening place. And there was a lot of immorality in the city. And this church embodied some of the fallen characteristics of its broader society, of its city. They were struggling with the translation. They were struggling to let the good news of Jesus Christ really be the defining story of their whole lives. In other words, they were struggling to apply the gospel. How do we apply the gospel to our lives? What does the gospel applied look like? Paul says that anyone in Christ is a new creation. And the new creation in question refers both to the person concerned and to the the new world in which they enter, the world that has now been reconciled to the Creator. Paul says, from now on, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We're looking at the entire world differently now. We've, we ourselves have been swept up by God's grace into this great story of redemption and reconciliation, this ultimate reality, and, and so we're changed completely And we see a completely new world. The gospel is the good news about something that has happened, something that God has done and is doing in this world, something that when we truly grasp it, nothing looks the same to us ever again. The gospel is not just a cute story. It is not a religious preference that we can just add to our already established 
lives. It completely takes us over, sweeping, all-encompassing. We're new creations. We approach everything differently now. The way we think about ourselves, the way we think about this world around us, and uh, the way we think about our jobs and our relationships with one another, and marriage, and sex, and eating, and recreation, and church, all of it, all of it is completely different. We're standing on a completely new foundation, a completely different foundation than the one we were standing on. We've got a new set of lenses through which we see and think differently about absolutely everything. The gospel applied is not just that you behave better. It's that you're a completely new person living in a completely new world. And so Newbegin says elsewhere, the heart of the Christian message is the fact that God has acted in such a way that if believed, it must, it must henceforth determine all our ways of thinking. It could not merely fit into existing ways of understanding the world without fundamentally changing them. So we are talking about a comprehensive transformation here. Hopefully by now you're starting to get that drift. We're talking about an absolute comprehensive transformation. And I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it in Mere Christianity. He offers us an image, as he's always so good at doing. He gives us a picture that helps us think through what's really going on here. He says, Christ's work of making new men is like turning a horse into a winged creature. It is not mere improvement, but total transformation. It is a change that goes off in a totally different direction. So gospel application is as radical and extreme and comprehensive as it gets, all-encompassing. Have you experienced this in your life? I wonder if our invitation to have children ask Jesus into their hearts or to have children accept Jesus or what have you, I wonder if our invitation for those things is misleading in some ways. I wonder if it really captures the the scope of this kind of transformation and redemption that the Bible is all about. Here's a helpful illustration I read recently to help us think about this. So imagine, um, it's like, well, it goes like this. We are not, you and I, we are not integrated, unified, whole persons. We're not. Right? We, our hearts are multi-divided. So picture in your heart, there's something like a boardroom in every heart. Every one of us has a heart, and in every heart there's a boardroom. There's a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, uh, whiteboard, and there's a committee sitting around the table, and they're constantly, uh, well, the, the committee's made up of, like, the social self, uh, the religious self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the childhood memories self, and many others. And they're constantly arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely do they ever come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We are like that. We tell ourselves it's because we're so busy, distracted. We've got so many responsibilities. The truth is, we're just indecisive. And we're held back by small thoughts of Jesus. Now that's us. A person in this condition 
can then accept Jesus in one of two ways. If you're in this condition, a person in this condition can ask Jesus into your heart one of two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee. Give Jesus a vote too. But then he's just one influence among many others. And that's just not Christianity. That's not New Testament, new creation Christianity that we are reading about. The other way, the other way to accept Jesus then is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my entire committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you now completely. Please run my entire life for me. Show me how that works. That is what salvation looks like. If Jesus really is who he said he is, if it's true that he did what he did and he's who he said he is, then his demands on us are absolutely radical. He will not allow us to simply conveniently squeeze him in to our already established lives as just part of, of our lives. He will not let us do that. He demands that we offer to him every fiber of our being, everything. He demands that, that you lose your life for his sake and for the gospel's sake in order to truly find it, as he, as he says in Mark chapter 8. And we can do that. We can joyfully and radically give ourselves over to him, every fiber of our being, and we can do it because uh, of his trustworthiness, because he gave himself to us to save us. And uh, so we can radically give ourselves over to him on the basis of his love and grace and faithfulness that he's shown us. In fact, when you look at what he's done for you, then what, what he requires of you is really the only logical, natural response when you understand who he is and what he's done. So, secondly, as we apply the gospel and as God reshapes us by his spirit, we find ourselves in the business of gospel advancement. In verse 20, Paul refers to Christians as ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to the entire world through us. God reconciles the world to himself. The reconciliation being described in this passage is the total, complete, ultimate restoration and redemption of all things through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the entire show, first to last, the whole thing is God's initiative and God's work. Yet, now God gives us the ministry of reconciliation as his new creations. And he, and he sends us out into this world as his representatives. Think of it like this. All the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve had been given a job to do. And their work, their mission, their calling involved, of course, relational things. They were to love God and love one another perfectly. But it also included culture building and society building. They were called to push out on the boundaries and the borders of their paradise and push it out into the rest of the world. But as they rebelled, as they pulled themselves away from God, they abandoned their mission. They abandoned their calling as servants of God in the world. And they instead, they began to use the world for their own gain. 
And so what do you see around us today, right now? What do we see in this world? Brokenness, selfishness, darkness, and all of it stems from this rejection of God. And Paul is saying now, it's, it's our job now to turn the entire world back to Jesus Christ. That is the work we ought to be about. So as you think about your role in this, whether it's as a college student or a factory worker or a doctor or a teacher or a social worker or a U.S. Marine or a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is that you do, whatever work you're called to, Paul is urging us to think, now what would it, what would it look like to take your life and your work and your occupation and to to live it out in the new creation? What would it look like to think about these things under the lordship of Jesus Christ? In that world, everything we do is ministry. Everything we do is an opportunity to proclaim reconciliation. No matter who you are or what you do, every new creation in Christ is also an ambassador for Christ. 19th century Reformed theologian Charles Hodge helps unpack what this means. An ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. He does not speak in his own name. He does not act on his own authority. What he communicates is not his own opinions or demands, but simply what he has been told or commissioned to say. That's what this is about. The good news that we have been given by God to proclaim is, is ours to take into this world on, uh, uh, as his representatives and proclaim it. I, uh, unfortunately, though, ours is a culture of hostility and resistance towards this gospel message of reconciliation, the gospel we're called to advance. And so this requires Christians to be crystal clear on what exactly it is that our message is about. We have to have the ability to know exactly what this message we've been given is. And we need to have the ability to be able to communicate this message winsomely and persuasively. In other words, Christ's ambassadors need to know clearly, precisely, what exactly they believe, what exactly this gospel of reconciliation is, and Ambassadors need to know why they believe it. Why do you believe it? C.S. Lewis writes that the great difficulty is to get modern audiences to realize that you're actually preaching Christianity solely and simply because you think it to be true. They always suppose you're preaching it because you like it or you think it's good for society or something of that sort. First and foremost, Those in whom God is working to redeem are compelled to believe this great story of reconciliation and redemption because they see it as ultimate reality, as the actual real truth. Jesus really is who he says he is, in other words. He really did what he said he would do. Resurrection is actually real. Forgiveness and salvation are real. We're compelled to believe that Christianity is actually true. And so we're, we're called to account for it 
in the face of the hostility and resistance of our culture. Christianity is much more than simply a worldview, but it is a worldview. It's a set of answers to the biggest questions of life. It's a belief system that makes sense of ourselves and the world around us. What is justice exactly? Where does it come from? How do we understand it? On what basis can we really fight in any meaningful way for human dignity and human rights? Christianity as a worldview accounts for these things and many more in a way that other worldviews cannot. And ambassadors are called to explain why Christianity makes sense in our world, offering compelling reasons for their belief. Now, atheist Richard Dawkins, uh, in his book, The God Delusion, he writes, Christianity teaches that unquestioned faith is a virtue, that you don't have to make the case for what you believe. But that's such a gross misunderstanding. 1 Peter 3.15 says, oh, yes, you do, right? Always be prepared to offer a defense for your beliefs. Always be ready to, to offer reasons for the hope that is in you. These are the things we're called to as ambassadors ourselves. Does your faith make emotional and intellectual sense of our world today? Can you articulate that with humility and grace? As an ambassador for Christ, Paul himself was, was very often making the intellectual case for his faith in the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 15 is filled with logic and argument and evidence as he builds the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 17, another example, Paul stands in the intellectual epicenter of the sophisticated city of Athens, the place to be as a deep thinker or a philosopher. And he stands right in the middle of it, and he reasons with the best and the brightest, and he makes a compelling, persuasive case for the gospel in the face of the hostility and resistance in his culture. College campuses, workplaces, and society around us are filled constantly with opportunities for us to, or for Christ's ambassadors, to live out the gospel of reconciliation and to proclaim its message as ambassadors. That's the work we're called to. Uh, To summarize all this, in his commentary on our passage this morning, N.T. Wright offers a tremendous summary of this gospel advancement we're talking about. He says, this new world has a new king, and the king has ambassadors. Paul is not offering a new philosophy, though his message makes robust philosophical sense in its own way. He's not inviting people to try out a new religious experience, though anyone who believes this gospel will have experiences they'd never imagined. What he's doing is he's going into all the world with a message from its newly enthroned sovereign, a message inviting anyone and everyone to be reconciled to the God who made them, loves them, and has provided the means of reconciliation for them to come back to know and love him in return. 
And what exactly are the means of reconciliation that God has provided for us? Paul affirms the heart of the gospel in one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. And so, in our final point this morning, the gospel affirmed, we turn our attention to verse 21. For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was the Bennett Anderson Revised Standard Version, in case you were wondering about the, the different wording there. Not funny? No, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus, listen, here's the deal. Jesus accomplished your salvation for you. That's it. But this verse gives us a glimpse into exactly what that means, how he did it. It gives us a picture, a complete yet brief picture of how this work was accomplished. This passage is teaching the idea of substitution. Jesus Christ suffered and died as our substitute in judgment, in our place. And in doing so, in doing this work, he removed the curse of sin and death from us and he took it on himself as our sin offering. Many people find this teaching offensive. Uh, Salvation by substitution is perhaps the sweetest truth in the Christian faith. But for those on the outside, this is a tough pill to swallow many times. For some, it's just an insult. Like, you're telling me that I am literally so incredibly bad that the only way salvation is possible is by the very Son of God dying in my place. It's offensive. Uh, It's an insult. For others, it it just doesn't make sense. It's maybe confusing. It, It seems maybe unnecessary at best, and just plain cruel at worst. Like, why? Why couldn't God just simply forgive us? Why this crazy, bloodthirsty, I've got to kill my own son thing? Why, why would his son have to die for that to happen? Why couldn't, he said, let there be light, let there be vegetation, let there be this and that. Why, why couldn't he just say, let there be forgiveness? Why couldn't he just let it go? Why couldn't God just simply be a God of love? The truth is, Jesus had to die because our sinfulness, our rebellion against God is indeed so severe. There is a darkness inside each and every one of us, and we know it. We know it's there, and that cost is so great. Its it's wages is death, Romans says. So Jesus had to be willing to step into that predicament and to take it into himself in order uh, to rescue us from it, in order to free us from it and offer the forgiveness we need. Now, of course, Jesus didn't become a sinner. The text says he became sin for us. He became a sin offering for us to be judged by God the Father in our place. And as the hymn The great old hymn sings, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned, he stood, sealing my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Now, 
This can make great sense to us. If we think about this in terms of our experience in this world, our relationships with one another, this can make great sense. If we look at what forgiveness actually is and how it works in our world, we will see that all true forgiveness is really some kind of a substitutionary sacrifice. Whenever there's true forgiveness, there's always a cost. In other words, it's never free. There's always substitution. For example, imagine that your friend accidentally breaks, he's over at your house, and he breaks your very expensive MacBook. The illustration started off as your very expensive lamp. My wife Holly said, that's the lamest illustration I've ever heard. Who has like a prized possession, a lamp? That is just so near and dear to their hearts. So we'll turn this into a MacBook. So your, your friend breaks your MacBook. You paid a good amount of money for it. I mean, those things are expensive, and you got this thing tricked up, and it's like sweet, and now it's broken. It's destroyed forever. That stinks, but you have one of two choices to make now, don't you? At this point in time, you can do one of two things. You can either demand that he pay you back for the loss, fork up the money to replace that MacBook. That's one option. But the other option is you can let it go. You can forgive the debt, but in doing so, you absorb the debt into yourself. If you just let it go, you lose the value of the MacBook. Someone has to pay for the loss, either him or you. And if you forgive, it costs you. That's a sacrifice you make in his place. Now, fundamentally, that's how it works. No matter the severity of the crime, no matter the level or the degree to which forgiveness is needed, on some level, you have to absorb the cost of whatever it is or whoever it is you're forgiving, whether, whether the cost is some amount of money, literally, or, or whether it is your reputation, a hurt reputation, or, or if it's your feelings, whatever it is. That's how it works. And Jesus, on the cross willingly lost his own life and his perfect intimacy with God the Father and absorbed the cost of our sin so that we don't have to. The price has to be paid, see, either by him or us. And because of God's great love, Jesus was willing to do that. Don't you see? If, I mean, if, if, all, if all life-changing love works this way, if all true forgiveness in even our experience works this way, there's some, there's some kind of substitutionary sacrifice to some degree or another. If that's how it works, if that's true, then how could God really, truly be a God of love if he doesn't do that for us? If he doesn't himself get personally involved in our suffering and sin? The answer is he couldn't. And there's only one major world religion that claims that he does. Do you see what Jesus has done for you? Have you taken this personally? Personally? Here's, in his book, The Transforming Power of the Gospel, Jerry Bridges starts to make this personal. Listen to this. Jesus was made to be all that which is abominable and hateful 
to God. All that which is the object of his holy and just wrath. As our substitute, he was made to be the embodiment of all our rebellion, all our lawlessness, all of our despising of God and his law, all of our big sins and all of our little sins, even all the sins of which we are not aware because of the moral blind spots so many of us have. Yes, Jesus was made to be all of that. For our sake, he was made to be sin. John Stott goes even further in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. Because ultimately, what sent Jesus there was neither the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priests, nor the cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed our own envy and cowardice and other sins. And Christ's resolve in love and mercy was to bear their judgment and so put them away. Stott says, it's impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and to not feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. There these obnoxious weeds shrivel and die. They are seen for the poisonous things they are because if there was no other way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness except that he should bear it in himself, it must be serious indeed. It's only when we see this that stripped of our self-righteousness and our self satisfaction, we are ready to put our trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior we urgently need. We're talking about the great exchange here. Jesus Christ switched places with us. That's how our salvation was accomplished for us. Salvation by substitution. The gospel affirmed. Stott says sin, sin is basically this. Sin is man substituting himself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Salvation, therefore, is not something that is left for you and me to accomplish by our own efforts. It was accomplished for us and offered to us as this gift of reconciliation. Do you ever struggle with the assurance of your salvation? Look at the cross. Look to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and behold your Savior. Martin Luther wrote a letter to somebody struggling with assurance of salvation. And he he looked at these truths, and Luther offered this great encouragement. He said, said, uh, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on me what was You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, so that I might become what I was not. The great exchange. On the cross, Jesus 
absorbed. All, all of our brokenness, all of our selfishness and sinfulness and rebellion, all of it was placed on Jesus so that we wouldn't have to live in it forever, so that we could be given this new creation. Do you see what Jesus has done for you? Not, not just what he has spared you from in his suffering and death, but do you see what he's given you in his victory over sin and death itself in this exchange? He became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know what that means? Being the righteousness of God in Christ means that if you stood before God's holy throne right this very second, and if he were to look on you right now in all of your mess, if he were to look on you in all of your embarrassment, in all of your shame, in all of your sin and rebellion and self-absorption, self-centeredness, corruption and sin, if he were to look on you right now, it means that he would actually see right through all of that and he would see you with his eyes. He would see you as the perfect righteousness of his own son. There wouldn't be a single spot or stain on you, not a single one. Not because you don't have any. We have lots. But because Jesus took them from you, every last one. And the work he did was so powerful. We think so little of it. It was so powerful that he actually accomplished this work of removing every single last spot and stain. And he placed his own perfect righteousness over us so that, so that one day we can live in the new creation forever, free from all sin and suffering. Is this personal for you? Have you tasted something of what we're describing? Have you tasted and experienced the transforming power of this gospel? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, as we close, Paul refers to a chapter in Isaiah, the prophecy from Isaiah, chapter 49, and he ties it to this gospel message. In other words, Isaiah's day of salvation has arrived in the reconciliation of the cross. Paul is essentially urging the Corinthians, and he's urging us, don't take this grace in vain. He's, he's saying, don't play around with your Christianity. Don't play around with this. Don't take it in vain. Let it be the fundamental uh, reality for all of your life. So, fellow Christians, take this gospel with you now as we go off into this world. Because, behold, now is the day of salvation. It's here. It's him. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for this incredible work you've done for us. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin for us. We thank you for this exchange that we've been given the righteousness of Christ on the basis of his work, not our own. We thank you for the new creation, the, the world that you are reconciling to yourself. And we pray that you would help us to take more seriously the salvation we've been given. Forgive us. It's something we could never in a million years deserve. So forgive us for our sense of entitlement 
is something we could never earn, so forgive us of our pride and self-righteousness. Remind us once again of our basic need for Christ and the incredible work that was accomplished for us in this work of redemption and reconciliation. And now as we seek to allow this great gospel to shape our entire lives, to be the new creations that you're making us into, help us with that. Help us to take it into this world as ambassadors and, and uh, articulate this great hope, this message that we've been given. Help us to be uh, more faithful in our regular encouragement to one another with these things. And in all things, we pray for your spirit to be leading and guiding us in all aspects of life, that everything about who we are and what we do would be placed under the lordship of Christ, that our eyes and our vision of this world would expand so greatly that we would see what you're doing and how we fit into this great story of redemption. So thank you again for this time. Thank you for the graduates that we will celebrate next service. And uh, we pray... And all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.